Hey everybody, welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast, playoff edition. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon. Great to be here on the verge of the most exciting three weeks of the season. We've got six teams left standing. That number will be shaved down to four this weekend. And it won't be long until we see the Grey Cup shined up and being handed out at McMahon Stadium on November 23rd. Before we jump into it, remember you can follow me on Twitter at kdrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E 88, for updates and comments, and check out firstlinepicks.com for the full show archive, and I'll hopefully in the coming weeks have some sort of year-end statistical wrap-up posted on the website with some of the stats and the, the key metrics that we talk about here each week that'll you know, maybe give you a bit of bit of an overview of the of the stuff I've been been looking at this year to handicap these games. Uh, so what we'll do here is we'll do a bit of a, a year in review of uh, the nine teams' regular seasons before we we jump into the two semifinal games. To start with the also Rans, uh, all things considered, BC was probably the biggest disappointment in the CFL this season. They came in as very slight Grey Cup favorites in some places, uh, with a win total over-under of 11.5, but it was apparent by you know the end of week 5 or 6 that they had big problems on offense, specifically the horrible play of their offensive line, and the under on this win total cashed in August, which is hard to believe. Looking back, I, I wasn't all that high on the lines, because I simply didn't think the roster was very good outside of the quarterback and receiver positions, but five wins uh, obviously fell well short of anyone's realistic expectations. The Lions managed to stop the bleeding on offense in the second half of the season, and I, I liked the way Devon Claybrooks had their defense playing towards the end of the year. One thing that's worth pointing out is that the Lions stayed exceptionally healthy on defense throughout the season. Um, I had concerns about their depth coming into the year, but it was it was simply never called upon on that side of the ball, which is a, a rarity in this league. Some late wins were not enough to get invited back for 2020, though, as Claybrook's, uh, yeah, somewhat surprisingly, in the, the opinion of most people, uh, has been fired by the club. It would seem that GM Ed Hervey is safe for the time being, but I would think he's on his last coach now, uh, whoever that ends up being, and the rumor mill is already ramping up. I think the off-season retooling needs to be focused on the lines for BC. Um, They need a difference maker in the trenches on defense and some more beef at the linebacker position. Stopping the run was a continual sore spot for that unit, and uh, clearly the glaring weakness on a defense that performed decently enough in their secondary. Shifting over to another team that didn't meet expectations and has already made their changes, in, in management at least, the Toronto Argonauts turned in a second consecutive 4-14 season in a year where a fair number of people, myself included, thought of playoff spot was well within reach. Much like BC, the Argos put themselves out of it before it ever really got going with seven straight losses right out of the gate. Their preseason win number was sitting around seven and a half. That's right about where I had them projected, but that was another one where under wasn't in any doubt by the time Labor Day arrived. The problems on the field were numerous for Toronto, who seemed to have a decent level of talent on the roster, but never came together and produced consistently. The run game should have almost been a strength on this team, or you know, or at least not a weakness based on the personnel they brought into camp, but they frankly squandered it, never giving Tyrell Sutton a shot, underutilizing James Wilder early on in the year, and really only giving Brandon Burks a, a fair amount of reps when they had no other choice. 
Quarterback play was a disaster under James Franklin, who I do not expect to see starting a football game in the CFL again anytime soon. Uh, they were better under McLeod Bethel-Thompson, but still prone to some back-breaking mistakes. Defensively, this was the second year in a row where the secondary was a massive liability in Toronto. This unit was killed by injuries in 2018, and I gave them the benefit of the doubt that they'd be able to rebound this year, but that simply did not happen, and I think you probably see a significant number of personnel changes on both sides of the ball. Corey Chamberlain and his coaching staff seem to have one foot out the door, but the, the coaching salary cap complicates things, and it's not just automatic that these guys under contract are, are going to get the axe, even when it appears the team would like to go in a different direction, as I think Toronto probably does. This will be an interesting team to follow in the offseason as there's um, there's very few guys that are assured to return, in my opinion, uh, both on the field and on the sidelines. Moves have also already been made in Ottawa, fresh off a 3-15 and season, which ended on an 11-game losing streak. Coach Rick Campbell has stepped aside on his own terms. His working relationship with GM Marcel Desjardins no longer fit to continue. This has already led to rampant speculation that Campbell could be the next head coach in Edmonton should Jason Moss be shown the door if the Eskimos fail to go on an unlikely run to the Grey Cup. And uh, we're also hearing that BC's asked permission to speak with him as well. So um, fair chance we, we see Mr. Campbell on a sideline somewhere next year. You know, personally, I don't think he's he's a bad coach, and I'm I'm not really sure you can lay a whole lot of the blame at his feet for what happened in Ottawa this year. That roster was bad to begin with, and I don't think anyone quite expected a, a meltdown to this extent, but it was pretty clearly not a playoff team in, in my eyes. Uh, under nine and a half wins felt like the safest play on the board just before the season kicked off. Uh, turned out that one cashed with ease, although crazy as it sounds, it was actually an early sweat when Ottawa opened the season with wins over Calgary and Saskatchewan, but that proved to be the high watermark for them. This turned out as uh, is, is one of the worst offensive teams really of all time. Um, Ottawa generating absolutely nothing on offense after those first few weeks of the season. I think it would be too convenient though to just blame it on quarterback play, try to sign a free agent and move forward. Ottawa needs significant upgrades at the running back and receiver positions. Deontay Spencer appears to have stuck with the Denver Broncos, so that's probably not going to be an option in terms of uh, a returning former star, but they need to beat the bushes in the offseason and bring in some capable bodies because receiver and running back are probably the two easiest positions to fill, and if you can't find talent there, you're not doing your job. As far as the quarterbacks go, I would think Dominique Davis probably gets retained and given a second chance to at least be the backup under what will hopefully be better circumstances. It's it's anyone's guess who the new coach and coordinators are going to be in Ottawa, but one possibility they might explore uh, at quarterback is Jeremiah Masoli, who is a, a free agent after this season and coming off a major knee injury. And with the potential that he, he might have lost his starting job to Dane Evans, depending on how the next couple of weeks go for Hamilton, um, you know, I think there's a decent chance he's going to be available. Um, so like Toronto, expect a lot of interesting changes in Ottawa in the coming months. When it comes to the six playoff teams, Edmonton looked like a near lock to go over their win total of eight and a half back in August, but uh, lo and behold, they end up landing right at eight wins. Uh, that was foreseen for them. Uh, frustrating beat if you ended up going over on this one as you merely needed Edmonton to beat one decent team in the second half of the season, something they failed to do. 
Winnipeg was another team that looked like a sure bet to cash the over back in the summertime. They came in at 10.5 wins, uh, but this turned into a big-time sweat in the second half. And you can thank Darvin Adams' toe-tap touchdown that gave them a, or helped to give them a late win over Calgary in their season finale to stretch their record out to 11-7 and for, for getting you to the window if you had over on that win total. The two bomber collapses in Toronto and Montreal ended up keeping underbetters interested right until the end. Saskatchewan overcame a sluggish start to end up well over their 9.5 win total. They beat my own expectations by about three wins or so, and, well, I think they came upon some favorable schedule luck throughout the year. You've got to tip your hat to them for getting to 13 wins after Chris Jones left them high and dry in the offseason. My biggest sweat personally proved to be the Stampeders' win total of, of 12.5. I was on the under here, and it looked like it was pretty much in the bag going into Labor Day at 5-4, and four, but Bo Levi Mitchell coming back and ripping off six wins in seven games down the stretch had Calgary poised to hit the over if they could have hung on in Winnipeg two weeks ago. That, that one-point game ended up deciding both teams' fate in, in regards to which side cashed. Montreal overachieved immensely compared to preseason expectations, soaring past their 55 win total line en route to a 10-8 and season that few people could have predicted. And it looked like the same old Owls through the first two games of the season. I'm not sure what kind of odds you could have got from a bookie on Montreal to hit 10 wins after they started 0-2, but they would have been hefty. I figured Hamilton was a decent bet to go over their 10.5 win total, so long as Jeremiah Masoli stayed healthy. Turns out he didn't need to, as this was uh, all but decided by Labor Day. Hamilton dropped to 5-2 and two after Dane Evans' first start, but never looked back, almost running the table in finishing 15-3 and three on the year. That one loss in there was, a, was that one-point defeat in Calgary back in September in, in a game the Cats dominated. This team probably came closer than anyone will end up remembering to you know, nearly having a perfect season, uh, leading in the second half in all three of their losses. Um, and I'd say their comeback win against BC was probably the only win that maybe ought to have been a loss. So an exceptional season turned in by the Tabbies in any case, and they're, they're rightfully favored to be hoisting the Grey Cup in three weeks' time. So uh, with that said, let's have a look at those Grey Cup futures. So obviously Hamilton is the favorite here, sitting a little north of plus 200. I'd say it's somewhat rare to find any real value on the favorite heading into the playoffs, but if you don't already hold a futures bet on the Ticats, this number looks like a pretty solid play to me. I can't imagine a scenario where Hamilton isn't favored by close to a touchdown in the Eastern Final um, that they'll be hosting against the winner of Edmonton-Montreal. At a minimum, I think we'd see, see them laying three and a half or four points, which uh, correlates to around a, a minus 175 or, or a buck 57 on the money line. And if I had to line the game at this exact moment, I'd probably have them favored by six over Montreal, a, a little more if it was Edmonton. Assuming they won that, their odds in the Grey Cup game probably aren't going to be greatly affected by who their opponent is, but I'd, I'd have to think they're slight favorites over Winnipeg or Saskatchewan and, and probably a pick em against the hometown, hometown Stampeders if it came down to that. The thing to watch with these futures uh, in, in single elimination playoff formats is whether or not the price being offered is likely to pay out more than betting on the team to simply win each individual game and, and rolling your winnings over into the next bet. 
and in this case, um, you know, at, at plus two twenty five for Hamilton, I, I think that probably actually is the better price than than what you'd get on on back to back money line wins. So if if you fancy the Tiger Cats, probably not a a bad number to jump on. Looking at the other two teams in the eastern half of the bracket, Montreal at plus eight hundred. I th- I think that's probably a playable number if you think the Owls are going to pull off another upset or two, but. You know, to again use our money line projection method, you're probably not really gaining anything by playing them at this number, given that they're only slight favorites to beat Edmonton this weekend. And, you know, and then you project from there on out. Um, Edmonton plus 900, pretty much the, the same deal here. Uh, although in the unlikely event they actually reached the Grey Cup, uh, given that the you know travel would essentially be a non-factor with the Grey Cup being held in their province, I, I almost wonder if they'd really be significant underdogs at that point. Um, but I wouldn't play this number. Um, you know, it's not completely out to lunch, but I, I just don't see Edmonton really going on a, a Grey Cup run here. Going west, we've got about as close to a toss-up as you're ever going to find. Saskatchewan comes in at around plus 300, which normally would be incredible value on the first place team in the west, but the health of Cody Fajardo is something that can't be overlooked here, and I, I can't help but feel there's a, a little bit of whistling past the graveyard going on here with, with this injury. In his own words, if Fajardo hadn't taken himself out of practice last week to get checked out and attempted to play through the strained oblique that ended up keeping him out of the season finale, uh, this could have potentially turned into a, a much more serious injury. Fajardo declared on Sunday that, and his his maintained throughout the week uh, that that he's going to be good to go for the Western Final, and I'm, I'm sure that is the plan, but. These types of injuries aren't the most predictable in terms of their their prognosis and, and recovery time. The fact that he wasn't even dressed on Saturday suggests to me that there's there's absolutely no way he could have played. The Riders knew they needed a win in order to secure first place, and I, I just can't believe they'd have held him out entirely unless their, their hand was forced by the nature of the injury. Two weeks is a long time to heal up, but the risk of re-aggravating a muscle issue in sub-zero temperatures that will likely be present going forward in Saskatchewan is probably higher than it would be in the middle of July, you know, for example. Um, theoretically, this number shouldn't change based on what the result from this week is, though that's not to say it couldn't, depending on who wins between Calgary and Winnipeg, and, and more importantly, how healthy the winner of that game emerges if it becomes clear in the next few days that Fajardo is progressing and looking good in practice, I, I think some value on this number starts to emerge, but I, I don't think it's realistic that Saskatchewan would win the Grey Cup with Isaac Harker back there or with Fajardo at uh, at significantly less than 100%. So in, until that situation starts to clear up, if it clears up at all, uh, I'd, I'd have to pass on it. Calgary is looking to buck a recent trend of teams managing to miss appearing in their own Grey Cup despite appearing in it in surrounding years. That's something we just seem to have seen a a fair bit of the the last few years, but the outlook isn't as rosy as I'm sure they expected it to be a few weeks ago. Unable to reel in the riders for first place, the Stamps find themselves listed at around plus 375, which actually is a touch higher than their season opening odds. You don't want to overreact to a single result, but the game on Saturday wasn't pretty. Um, There seemed to be the attitude among commentators that maybe this really wasn't that important of a game after the Riders won in the afternoon to lock up first place. But I I can tell you, by the way, uh, you know, Dave Dickinson was acting on the sidelines. He certainly didn't view it that way. 
Uh, probably the sloppiest effort of the entire season from the Stampeders, and clearly one of the worst games Bo Levi Mitchell has played in recent memory. Calgary withstood a huge rash of injuries all season long to battle their way to 12-6, and six, but eventually you reach a breaking point where the new personnel who were three deep on the depth chart at their positions earlier in the year just can't quite pick up the slack, and I, I think we could be reaching that stage here. Mitchell is able to throw the ball like he has in the second half of the season, uh, you know, last Saturday notwithstanding. The Stamps can beat anybody, but the weather and the path they face to win the Grey Cup are, are not going to help things. Uh, it's going to be cold in Calgary this weekend, and who knows how things might unfold in the, the weather department in the Western Final in Regina or in the Grey Cup back in Calgary. I'll, I'll touch on these points more in depth when we preview the Western semi-final, but it, it gets tougher to pass the ball when it gets cold, and Calgary's going into the playoffs without a reliable run game. I'd never discount them as a championship threat for as long as they're still in the fight, but I, I don't think they're really worth it at this price right now. That leaves Winnipeg at plus 500, and while I actually like the Bombers in this spot more than, than I've liked any third-place team in the West in recent memory, this number just isn't worth it based on the current money line odds for the game this Saturday. Um, Winnipeg's currently plus 200 on the money line just to win the, f the first game, you know, the semifinal. So unless you figure they'd, they'd somehow be favored by close to a touchdown in both the, the Western final and the Grey Cup, which isn't at all realistic, um, it'll be much more profitable to simply bet on them to, to win three times in a row um, individually rather than, than all at once with a futures bet. Um, in fact, uh, unless unless Cody Fajardo actually gets ruled out of the Western Final in, in advance of the game, um, betting on Winnipeg to win the next two games simply to reach the Grey Cup would probably pay out a little more than the, the plus 500 on on betting them to actually win the entire thing right now. So I would I would definitely avoid this one purely due to the math. All right, well, let's uh, let's get into these playoff games themselves now. We've known officially for three weeks and unofficially since you know probably the middle of September that Edmonton was going to be heading east to play Montreal as the crossover team, and then that game has finally arrived with the Alouettes sitting as short minus one and a half or minus two favorites across the board. Over-under sits at an even 50. We've got two teams here that have kind of gone in opposite directions. Montreal didn't exactly fly out of the gate, but certainly established themselves as an upper half team by mid-season. And they've pretty well been locked into second place in the East since mid-September. Edmonton figured to factor prominently in the Western Division playoff race in the second half of the season, but slumped in late August, never recovering and losing quarterback Trevor Harris for several weeks as well. The outlook definitely uh, improves with Harris as uh, Harris returning two weeks ago, um, despite still ending the year with a pair of losses to Saskatchewan. But the fact remains that after their their Week One victory over Montreal at home, the Eskimos didn't win a single game against anyone other than Toronto, Ottawa, or BC. Uh, the entire rest of the schedule. General consensus is that Jason Moss is probably not going to be back as head coach in 2020, and really since they dropped both games against Calgary during the Labor Day series, this has had the feel of a team playing out the string. Montreal hasn't exactly surged into the postseason, but they haven't needed to either. They've, they've had the luxury of managing the reps of their key starters. The one benefit to Vernon Adams missing a fairly notable amount of time this season is a and we've gotten a decent look at Matthew Schiltz. Uh, he appears to have passed Antonio Pipkin on the quarterback depth chart for Montreal, and I think there's potentially a player there that 
hasn't really received much attention yet. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Schiltz eventually ends up getting himself into consideration for, for a look as a starter down the road if, if an opportunity opens up. In the here and now, though, all eyes will be on Vernon Adams in his first career playoff start. And for the first time this season, Montreal does have the weight of expectation. The offense has been explosive enough under Adams and has enjoyed steady production on the ground from both William Stanback and Jeremiah Johnson that I'd be pretty surprised if they can't move the ball and, you know, and score on Sunday. The Eskimos' defense has been a bit of an enigma in the second half of the year. Um, they regressed from where they were at earlier uh, in the season, but the, the schedule also got tougher at the same time, and the offense sputtered. So they were in a lot of games where other teams could just lean on them, and eventually the field position and time of possession disadvantages created by the offense took their toll. The biggest issue I see is that they've tended to struggle against mobile quarterbacks. Adams himself put up 37 points in about five quarters against them in the you know in the two combined games uh, between the teams, and we saw what Chris Strevler did against Edmonton in his first start, uh, and again two weeks ago, even though he wasn't taking off running, Cody Fajardo eventually threw for over 400 yards against them after they folded in the second half. Adams has made a lot of riskier throws this year on the run. And I think Edmonton's best uh, you know, best bet on Sunday is, is going to be flushing him out of the pocket and forcing him to make the high-difficulty throws. And now we've seen him successfully execute on these plays more often than not throughout the year. But as it gets colder and the, you know, the grip on the ball can become an issue. And as a defense, you, you, know, you hope to maybe get lucky and, and have that affect pass accuracy to the point that it creates a couple of turnovers. That's something this defense really needed to do a little more of this season. Uh, Edmonton finished with a minus 7 turnover ratio on the year, which is, is significantly worse than every other playoff team. They they turned it over them, themselves on downs a fair number of times, which, which influences that number a little bit, but only 14 interceptions considering their pressure rate on a, opposing quarterbacks is a little bit lower than you'd expect. I think the defensive line with the depth they have up there is, is going to be fine. They should create a fair amount of pressure, and they've, they've won the battle against Montreal's offensive line in the first two games they played this year, albeit we're stretching back to June and July. And the Owls' line play has improved over the season. William Stamback is certainly capable of busting off a big run against this defense, and he has done that. But I, I think on the whole, the Eskimos can probably force Montreal to beat them through the air. And whether or not this secondary can step up and limit a strong group of receivers is going to decide their fate. This group has found themselves on an island at times with the blitzes they like to run, but they'll, they'll need to be a bit better than we're used to seeing if, if, uh, if Edmonton's going to pull off the upset. One note, uh, Devere Posey hasn't been uh, 100% confirmed to be, be playing on Sunday for Montreal. Though given that it's a playoff game, I'd, I'd imagine if, if he can go, he will go. Uh, the, the Eskimos defense should be getting more help from their own offense than they're used to uh, in recent weeks. Harris is obviously not in mid-season form, only playing the, the one game two weeks ago since going down in early September, but he's still a noticeable step up from, from the alternative, and he's a guy that does bring some veteran playoff experience to the most important position. Montreal's defense has been a bit up and down this year, and their their biggest area of weakness is along the defensive line, whether it's been stopping the run or getting pressure to the quarterback. Every team in the league had at least one game against the Owls' uh, front where they were highly successful running the ball this year, uh, including Edmonton. 
Obviously, go going back to data from five months ago may not be entirely indicative of the way things stand right now, uh, but CJ Gable's going to be back there for the Eskimos for the first time in a few weeks, and you know he did have one of his best games of the year running against this defense. I'll be keeping an eye on the old veteran John Bowman uh, lining up at his familiar spot on the edge for Montreal. Even after all these years, this guy's still the leader among that defensive line, and being back in the playoffs for the first time in a few years, I think we're going to get everything he has to offer here. And the Owls will be looking to somebody like a Woody Barron or, or a Ryan Brown to step up and, and plug the middle along the line of scrimmage. I don't think Montreal needs to do anything crazy here on defense to win this football game. They don't need to force eight punts or something like that, but... If they can keep the running game contained when the Eskimos cross midfield on them and you know force Edmonton to kick field goals, I, I think I think their defense will take that all day. This Eskimo offense has been pretty good at, at shutting themselves down when they start to get near the goal line. So I think this is a case where the Owls can afford to get nickeled and dimed a little between the twenties if if that's what it takes to avoid giving up the quick strike and, and you know and then just hope they can buckle down uh buckle down in the red zone. Probably the biggest contrast between these teams has been, you know, has been Edmonton's struggle all year to convert those opportunities into majors, whereas Montreal's had no issues in the red zone. Um, you know, and the reality is here, whichever offense can get themselves into the end zone three times is probably going to be the winner here. I, I think 25 points is likely looked at as the benchmark in, in terms of what it's going to take to win. And, and from the Montreal perspective, there's only been one game the entire year, um, not including the third quarter cancellation game against Saskatchewan, where they didn't score 20 points. And that was in week two, um, which was Adams's first start against the, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. So when I look at this number only favoring the Owls by one and a half points, it, it's pretty clear that the market doesn't trust their defense all that much to come through in the clutch here. Um, and it's fair to be skeptical, but it's hard for me to ignore that Edmonton has, you know, without fail, been unable to overcome any team in this, you know, in the league this entire year besides those those mired in the basement since the opening week of the season. The crossover team in general has not had a great deal of success heading across the country for the semifinal, and most of those times that the Western team has come up with the victory, they were a considerably stronger football team than their opponent. That's not the case here. Uh, Montreal has to be considered the better of the two teams right now, and when you factor in the in that with the past history and the effect of cross-country travel at the end of a long season, I'm I'm surprised this line came in at less than a field goal, actually. Even if we go ahead and assume that Trevor Harris is going to perform at a level similar to where he was at in the summer before getting injured, that it still doesn't give Edmonton more than a, a coin flips chance on, on Sunday afternoon, in my estimation. To back the, the Eskimos, essentially to win the game. I mean, in theory, a one-point loss gets it done for you. But for all intents and purposes, you're, you're picking them to win outright. Uh, you know, I think you're committing to at least a couple of Montreal turnovers occurring. I just don't see Trevor Harris outdueling Vernon Adams from a production standpoint. Well, I mean, a point production standpoint. Um, so it'll come down to ball protection. Um, one guy is very good at limiting turnovers in Harris. Uh, the other guy, as we've mentioned, likes to take some chances out there. And, and winning the turnover battle is really the, the one avenue I, I see for Edmonton to advance here. Is Kahari Jones going to tell his quarterback to dial it in? I don't think so. I don't think this is suddenly the time to get conservative, especially against an aggressive defense that will give you openings in coverage uh, that can be exploited. 
Um, and ultimately, you you go with what you got got with what got you there. And for Montreal, that's that's won them more games than it's lost them. And I'd be be banking on them getting it done here before I'd be betting against them. Um, no question. The weather forecast is is a wild card here. It's calling for a sloppy, wet, uh, perhaps windy afternoon at Molson Stadium right now. Um, you know, approximately forty eight hours from kickoff. Under has not been particularly prevalent in Montreal games this year. Uh, Thirteen times in seventeen completed games, they've they've had their their total come in at fifty or better, which is where this total remains. As long as it's not particularly cold or steadily raining, the wetness of the field shouldn't really hamper the offenses all that much. The potential for wind gusts over 30 kilometers per hour would be the bigger concern here, uh, along with Edmonton's red zone struggles. Totals in general get tricky in, in playoff games, though, and I, I don't typically bet them heavily. November weather uncertainty combined with unknown factors like what plays or sets these coaching staffs have kept close to the vest to pull out in these must-win situations, you know, just creates a, a situation where it's tough to see much value on the total. We've seen playoff games between two defensive stalwarts turn into, into shootouts and vice versa over the years in, in the CFL playoffs, so no strong lean on the total here. The Western semifinal will take place in Calgary for the first time since 2015 and will feature a rematch between two teams that met last year at the same venue in the Western final. A close game won by the Stampeders who went on to win the Grey Cup the next week. Calgary opened as fairly hefty 6.5 point chalk and some early money coming in on the Bombers has us sitting around 5.5 or 6 at the moment. No movement yet on the 49.5 point total. This is a really unique situation as far as I can remember. Winnipeg, of course, ended their season on a bye week, so this is going to be their third game in a row against Calgary, which I, I can't recall ever happening before. I'm sure it has at some point, but you know, interesting bit of trivia there nonetheless. I, I think the extra week of rest for the Bombers and an extra week of practice with Zach Caleros running the offense is potentially huge. Uh, Mike O'Shea collapse in Montreal earlier this season notwithstanding has had pretty strong results coming off bye weeks during his tenure as the head coach in Winnipeg and the the other side of the coin here Calgary had to go out last week and and play the late game on on Saturday night on the road in BC and they they needed to win that game for the right to host this one so they didn't have the luxury of resting anybody and the injuries are very numerous right now in Calgary um, to go back to the game two weeks ago quickly, since since we didn't put out a show last week. Huge result for Winnipeg, I, I think, even though they still ended up finishing in third place. We really had no idea how things were going to look under Caleros coming off the bench after missing the entire season, essentially. And, and I'd say the results were encouraging. He stayed in one piece despite taking a big hit, and this was, believe it or not, at at 60%, uh, the, the highest uh, passing success rate Winnipeg has had in, in any game all season. Um, that's not to say they lit it up through the air. That would be an overstatement. But for the first time in a while, needing to pass on second down wasn't an outright concern. Calgary actually completely shut down Andrew Harris in this game. So for Winnipeg to go out there and put up 27 offensive points on the board with their, their worst rushing performance of the season is is not something that I think anyone could have predicted. 
this this was a missed opportunity for the Stampeders, though. Rare to say about that team and coaching staff, but they they really ought to have won this game, and and failure to do so has had some negative ramifications for sure. You look back, and I, I can't help but think if Janarian Grant doesn't run back that missed convert and and uh, end up swinging three points, uh, I think that was late in the third quarter of that game. Uh, Winnipeg probably isn't able to claw back in the fourth quarter and win the game. They would have been down by by two majors. Um, as as it was, they needed a circus catch in the end zone from from Darvin Adams, that one I alluded to earlier on a on a scramble drill halfway through the fourth quarter to get get themselves back within a field goal. Um, so that has to be a little frustrating to have a, a point swing like that happen when normally the Stampeders go for two after touchdowns, though attempting the single to go up four, not an unreasonable strategy in the second half of a football game, and, and you need your kicker to make that. Um, it wasn't a great night for Rene Paredes, who missed a makeable field goal in the first half as well that certainly could have made a difference in the end. To get back to the injuries, though, Calgary was the team in the West, more than Saskatchewan or Winnipeg, that could have dearly used a bye week to heal up and try to get some bodies back in the lineup. As it unfolds, though, that loss to Winnipeg ultimately did cost them first place in the division and the and the bye week that comes with it, with the, the double whammy of the Bombers resting up and now the Riders you know, getting to do the same thing right now ahead of hosting the Western Final next week. If Calgary can't end up winning these next two games and get themselves into their their own Grey Cup at the the end of the month, we'll definitely look back on a, a few plays in that that Calgary Winnipeg game. I think is is probably the turning point. Calgary did buckle down late last week and and preserve home field for this game by surviving a second half push from the BC Lions with Brandon Bridge inserted at quarterback. But the overall look of last week's game was a bit concerning. Bo Levi Mitchell had been dynamite down the stretch, but arguably had his worst showing of the year to close things out, and the complete lack of any run game was on display again. For that game to still be hanging in the balance late, despite the defense holding a, a wounded Lions offense to 10 points through 58 minutes, was was quite unexpected. <laughs> Kudos to BC and Brandon Bridge for showing up in the second half. They could have won this game outright with one more play from uh, from a quarterback who hasn't been employed all year up until two weeks ago. Um, Dave Dickinson was not happy on the sidelines throughout the game, and, and with good reason, um, you know, just given how bad that offense looked in a game they needed to win. You don't want to want to overreact to a small sample size. Any team can have an off night, but there's a number of factors all, all converging here that wouldn't have me brimming with confidence going into Sunday as it pertains to the Stampeders' chances of covering nearly a touchdown or, you know, or frankly, winning the game, period. The weather forecast is looking like worst-case scenario for Calgary right now. Uh, you know, it's it's decent right now, and it looks like it will be generally decent next week. But as fate would have it, Sunday afternoon projects to be smack in the middle of a 24-hour stretch calling for bitter cold and, and probably some snow. When you factor in a, a potential breeze and the sun going down, as which will you know which will be happening is in the second half of this game, um, you know it might be almost 20 below, uh, you know by the time we reach the fourth quarter here, and there there gets to a point where the the quarterback just can't effectively grip the ball when he drops back to pass, and of course both guys are going to be hampered by that. But if the passing game becomes a, a non-factor, Calgary is in serious trouble in my opinion because. That kills what is is by far their biggest advantage over the Bombers. 
if this turns into a, a ground and pound situation, and there's a very real chance it will when it's it's not cold and snow is blowing around, Andrew Harris and Nick Dembski against whoever Calgary has back there, uh, likely some combination of Don Jackson and Antti Milanovic leader has has mismatch potential. Uh, the one thing Calgary does have going for them is that they've defended very well against the run the last two games. John White couldn't get anything going last week, and, and Harris himself, um, as I mentioned earlier, was almost an, a non-factor uh, against Calgary two weeks ago. Shutting down the Bombers' run game twice in a row, though, that's not an easy task, and you'd, uh, you'd still have to give Winnipeg a huge edge in that department coming into this game, especially if the field is is indeed in, in bad condition. I don't have any official news to pass along yet as far as which members of the Stampeders we can expect to see come off the injured list for, for this game. Um, Trey Roberson and Royce Mechie both missed last week's game, two key pieces in the defensive secondary. Uh, Roberson, I'd, I'd have to think, plays if at all possible. He has been practicing. Uh, he got dinged up against Winnipeg, but it, it didn't look too serious. Uh, Mechie, though, I... I don't expect to see him out here. That looked like a you know a pretty severe injury he suffered, and uh, we'll we'll see about some other guys. There's there's lots of question marks that won't uh, officially be answered probably until sometime tomorrow, uh, which will be Saturday afternoon um, when the depth charts get released. Um, you know, Cordero Law is uh, his status is up in the air as well. Um, Eric Rogers, no official word yet. Uh, Kamar Jordan, who's been out since uh, I think it was the Labor Day rematch last year where he he ripped up his knee. He's been out all season, but he has been practicing. Um, potentially a fresh body that could could have a huge impact if if he's able to able to come in and and you know be up to up to game speed. But uh, hard to bank on that happening in November after you've missed an entire year. But definitely uh, keep keep an eye out for for any official announcements. Uh, coming out of Stampeder's camp as far as injuries go. The Bombers themselves aren't exactly the pinnacle of health right now, though I would say they're in, in significantly better shape than Calgary. Uh, probably the biggest question mark for them is Chris Streveler. Mike O'Shea hasn't confirmed that Caleros is officially starting, but I, I'd say it's a virtual guarantee that he will be, even if Streveler is healthy enough to dress. Um, you know, even with Caleros as the presumed starter, though, Strevler's absence, if he can't go, isn't isn't something to totally disregard. He's a, a guy that, that gets inserted at times to give the offense a different look, specifically on plays where the quarterback is going to run either by design or has the option to run. And in uh, potentially brutal weather conditions, having a quarterback who can run the ball at your disposal would, would certainly be a nice luxury. Given that three weeks have now passed since he originally got hurt and he, he still hasn't been a full participant at, at practice, leads me to believe, though, that, that Streveler is not likely to be a significant factor on Sunday. All the weather-related concerns with the passing game that apply to the Stampeders offense obviously apply to Calaris and the Bombers as well, but while I think Calgary's probably going to still, still pass as often as they can against a, a leaky Winnipeg secondary, I'd be surprised if we saw many throws of more than 10 yards downfield from Winnipeg unless it's out of necessity if, if they fall behind by multiple scores in the second half. This team was built to pick up yards um, just you know a few at a time and grind down defenses along the line of scrimmage, and, and these conditions play right into, the, right into their hands. 
you're going to be seeing seven and eight man boxes on defense from the Stampeders and, and Paul Lapolis is going to need to play every card he has in his deck to make sure Andrew Harris gets the ball into his hands as often as possible and in a position to succeed in spite of the Stampeders keying on him, which, which they will no doubt do. One more X-factor here might be the special teams. Year after year, the Stampeders have thrown out one of the top special teams units in the game, but they've had problems this year, and I'm not really seeing any signs that this has been corrected. Their kick coverage has been bad, and Janarian Grant specifically has, has come up for Winnipeg, uh, come up big for them repeatedly. Uh, I, I believe he's touched the ball 23 times on, on returns in the three games he's played against Calgary this season, and, and he's chewed them up for about 600 yards and, and three house calls. Uh, field position is huge in close games, and if, if he's consistently busting off 20 or 30-yard runs on, on punts and kickoffs, that's going to continue uh, helping this Winnipeg offense immensely. Uh, at this point, I, th I think you have to trust Justin Medlock as as well a lot more than Rene Paradis, who's been fairly hit and miss throughout the season, even even before the two key misses last week. That ball is going to be frozen on Sunday, so I'm not sure if we see these coaches attempting kicks much over 45 yards anyway, unless they're desperate. But a, a missed kick going the other way is something that appears more likely to break Winnipeg's way than Calgary's. To tie it all into the number, plus six looks quite attractive to me. If the weather forecast flips and all of a sudden some warm air moves through southern Alberta, that might change the outlook here, but 48 hours out, it still looks like uh, some pretty bitter weather is, is going to be the main theme out there. An element that would tend to steer you towards the, the underdog in the in the first place, um, you know, is you know, weather can always be the great equalizer, so to speak. But I, I think that's even more pronounced here, given that that one team's offense is is so much more conducive to operating along the ground in bad conditions. Um, I wouldn't touch the total here. A run-heavy game doesn't depress scoring in the CFL like it does in American football, where you can chew up so much clock on a single series. But there's really no telling if if either team is going to be able to pass the ball effectively. Uh, Winnipeg barely manages to do that at the best of times. <laughs> um, you know, but a snow-covered field does tend to help the team in possession of the ball, so that that's also something to to consider. The money line underdog, uh, you know, I suppose probably just due to how bad Ottawa, Toronto, and BC proved to be against everyone besides themselves this year. Um, is normally a bet that does provide value in this league over the course of a full season, um, but that hasn't been a viable play very often this year. Um, you know, I think it might be here though. Plus two hundred for a Winnipeg team coming in with with every advantage you can think of in in terms of the spot, um, and having just played a pair of one score games against Calgary is probably worth a shot here. Taking the five and a half or the, the six, if you can still find it, is the, the safer place, certainly. Uh, Winnipeg has, has come up short in a few close playoff games in recent years, and you know that could very well happen again here. But this is probably as well-equipped as an underdog has been um, to go into Calgary and win a playoff game in, in several years. Okay, so as far as our, our best bet goes, uh, you know, no real suspense here. I, I think the Bombers getting getting all those points is probably the way to go this weekend, and we'll see if they can extend their season another week, something they did manage to do last year in the Western semifinal, uh, going into Regina and beating back the favoured Rough Riders. 
Zach Caleros going into Regina as a member of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers with a Grey Cup berth on the line uh, next week after being the Riders' opening day starter uh, would be one of the more unusual turns of events we've witnessed in the CFL over the years, but at this point, nothing that ever happens in the CFL should come as a true surprise. And, um, yeah, I think there's there's a there's a chance we see that. Um Okay, well, I guess that will wrap up the first ever playoff edition of Third Down Gamble. Uh, I expect to be putting out a show in advance of next week's division finals in the Grey Cup, so stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening, uh, listening this week and listening all year if you have been. Remember to follow me on Twitter at KDrive88 if you're not already doing so. Uh, so beyond that, good luck with all your wagering this weekend, and Hopefully you have a a little extra money in your pocket when the dust settles on Sunday night. We'll see you next time.